Welcome to Between Two Chairs, Demystifying Commercial Real Estate, the podcast that brings you the latest insights and trends on the South Florida commercial real estate market with your hosts, Fernando Arencibia Jr. and Jennifer Woolman. In each episode, we dive into the world of commercial real estate and break down complex concepts to make them accessible for everyone. Whether you're a real estate professional, a curious investor, or just interested in the South Florida market in general, Between Two Chairs is the podcast for you. So pull up a chair and join us. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Between Two Chairs. My name is Fernando Nesibia, Jr. Thank you so much for joining us. With me, as always, is the very unique and very exceptional Jennifer Wallman. Jennifer. We don't pronounce the J. We pronounce it Y. Jennifer. I love it. Hi, everybody, and welcome, welcome. So I'm excited because today is the first day of the South Beach Wine and Food Festival. And you might wonder, what does that have to do with real estate? Well, in addition to being a huge premier event and one of our big, big ones for South Florida, it really helped put Miami as a food destination on the map. And I think I've spoken about it before, but when I first moved here back in the 90s, there weren't a lot of great options. I'm trying to think of what was here. I mean, Versailles obviously was here. That was right. great. But in terms of like overall, fine dining, Joe Stone Crab was here, still a classic. Yeah. Um, ooh, what was the one on Miami Beach? It was a beautiful building. The Forge. The Forge. The forge. Oh, I miss the Forge. I, no. I loved it. They had the best price for Vove Clicquot by the bottle. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. incredible. Yeah, I loved the Forge. I, just, I missed I the Forge. The, uh, the fact that you would get a tour if you yeah. wanted to. They had so much history. Yeah, bring the forge back. I know. I know. We got to do that. But anyway, so because the Wine and Food Festival was so big of an event and, and so important at bringing it down, I just want to give a shout out to not just the event itself, but also to FIU. 100% of the proceeds from this event do go to FIU's Chaplain School of Hospitality and Tourism. Yeah. Yay. Thank you for everything FIU does. They're a great community partner. Partner, and their program was ranked number eight in the U.S. Wow. by QS World University Rankings. And then another huge, huge shout out to Lee Brian Schrager, who's the Senior VP of Communications and Corporate Social Responsibility for Southern Glaciers Wine and Spirit of America. They're a pillar institution in Miami, and he has done so much for the food and beverage industry in Miami. So a huge thank you to Lee Schrager. Basically, it started back in the 90s. It was a small event. It started at the North Campus of FIU and was okay as an right. intro. But in 2007, 
Lee had the brilliant idea of partnering with the Food Network. And so the Food Network brought on, you know, big names, big personalities, Guy Fieri, Jose Andres, Rachel Ray, who, by the way, is back this year. And she's going to host one of my favorite events, which is the Burger Bash. The Burger Bash is described as the epic burger showdown. They have like 30 different burgers and then drinks. You wash it down with drinks from, obviously, Southern Glaciers Wine and spirit. So I love their I love their quote on their website about the Burger Bash. It says, remember, it's a marathon, not a sprint. (laughs) (laughs) So grab a drink, take a breath and let your taste buds be your guide. And this is such a cool, typical South Florida event. For those of you who haven't been here for these events, we use our beaches for so much more than just sunbathing. (laughs) The Burger Bash is actually set up. Tables and tents are set up on the beach. We do polo on the beach, not the same day, obviously, because that would be messy, right? Polo and burgers. (laughs) But um, we've done concerts on the beach. So I love this event because it is on the beach under tents and in the middle of February when most of the rest of the country is under a deep freeze or in the case of California flooding. So the food industry, the food business F&B yeah. space here has exploded. It was already big and important before the pandemic. It has taken off even more since the pandemic. So we have a lot of homegrown food groups, right? We have Ariette. We have a bunch of other places, Graziano's. Um, you've worked with a lot of these food and beverage. And you did an interesting sale last year, right? Was it last year or the year before where you actually sold not the restaurant business, yeah. but you sold the physical restaurant space? And usually most of the spaces in South Florida are leased restaurant spaces, yeah. right? Most restaurants don't necessarily own their own space. So can you tell us a little bit about that deal yeah. and why? us through. I think that the food and beverage industry in Miami has grown by incredible leaps and bounds. It wasn't too long ago that when you were have conversations with people with other large cities around the world, um, they would mention that it's strange that Miami, being the size that it is, and that has so much great food, that we really didn't have a Michelin star rated, you know, restaurant. Now we have 11 in a very short period of time. And we have a plethora of Bib Gourmand, which is more of the quick service, casual eateries that are also recognized by by Michelin. And I find that the interest in food and beverage options here and the amount of people that are coming from out of the country and out of the state that have come and decided that they're going to plant their flag here in Miami, you know, I think that the options are going to be even more endless than they are today. So I can imagine someone, you going through your experience of coming here with barely a lot of options, right? Now this must be like like a playground compared to where it was, you know, before. It's so much fun. And, you know, I've watched people like Michelle Bernstein kind of grow up in the restaurant. I mean, she's always been amazing, but all the stuff that she's done and the different restaurants that she's opened. Adrienne Calvo also, you know, I've seen her start with one space and then open up different restaurants. So, yeah, and then, of course, you know, Michael Schwartz with Michael's Genuine, you know, all the stuff that he's done. So I love it. I I love our local celebrity chefs, but I'm super excited for them as well that now 
their backyard and where they started and the place that they believed in and the city that they believed in is now attracting such big names and helping put them on the map on a much larger scale even than they were before so and it feels very much like in that in that business you know rising tides do a lift all boats because you know there seems to be a level of excitement and camaraderie by the success of of each other in in the industry you know i think that there is a connectivity among restaurant operators that is rare to find in other industries because you know they have to go through so much right. you know and we had an opportunity during the pandemic to interview niven patel from uh, Mamey and Guy, you know, and Orno, and he opened a restaurant in the middle of the pandemic, you know, when everybody else was closing down. And twins with brand new with twins. Brand new twins, and <laughs> you know, this this farm to table concept that he has, and and bringing, you know, in Guy, for example, Indian food that that is not very common to find in Miami, and then what he has done with Mamey and curating that space, and 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 being the head of food and beverage for the Thesis Hotel, and setting all that up is it's really it's really mind-blowing how in really in a three-year period things have changed so much and um, and now he's leaving mummy right so there's some big changes going on i can't wait to see i can't wait to see what What he does next i know it's going to be spectacular whatever he does because he's he's a visionary and um but well, what I like about that business, and then I'll go into the sale, is that I've never met a restaurateur that is not hands-on, that a successful restaurateur that is not hands-on. Uh, you mentioned Graziano's, and one of the things that I enjoy the most is from time to time I'll go to the, the one of one of their Coral Gables location, the market in in Galliano, or I'll go to the market which was their original one in Burr Road, in Westchester, and from time to time I'll see Mario Graziano, who's the patriarch and who's the one who started it all, a butcher by trade and a very proud butcher and saying that you know we're we're i'm gonna bring really quality meats to south florida and i will see him behind the counter cutting down a piece of meat in front of uh, another butcher showing him how to do it even at this stage when they have nine locations and and they've grown so much and they keep growing that is you know to me very inspirational so this sale and and before the sale because i that brought up a great point so we did our women investing uh-huh. investing group. We do a lunch at the be- I mean a dinner at the beginning of every year. And this year we went up to Padrinos and Plantation, okay. and of course Beth Azor walks in and this guy stands up hey how you doing and it's mario mario owns padrinos that's where we were and there was this whole story about how she he was going to leave the restaurant business he you know after college he's like i want nothing to do with the restaurant business this was my parents business and beth kept telling him look you need to open here you need to open in the space you need to open in the space and after a ton of time he finally went and looked at the space fell in love with it opened a restaurant and he's like thank god i did he actually said if i ever write a book beth azor is going to be in it because she changed the course of my life i was going to leave this business and so here he was in the restaurant sitting down with his wife greeting all of the customers that walked in walking around super sociable which also, you know, changes the experience when sure. the owner's there. And then I have to give a shout out to, to Jeremy Ford of Stubborn Seed and Beauty and the Butcher. I haven't been to Stubborn Seed, but I love Beauty and the Butcher. Yeah. It's it's really, really good. Oh, I'm so hungry. I know. I'm starving right now. 
<laughs> we shouldn't right, record so, right so before let's, lunch let's talk about a podcast thing. on food and beverage. So, uh, <laughs> you know, note so to self. It's so exciting. Yeah. So sorry. So what, let's what get into the things? super cool sale. Absolutely. And so one of the things that is in very high demand for a restaurateur is a second generation restaurant. You know, restaurant industry is a very tough industry. There's a high rate of, of, of failure when you look at restaurant performance and, um, I think restaurateurs are a combination of uh, eternal optimist and a better crazy, mm-hmm. right? Because it is it is a very, very tough industry in which to, to thrive. And, uh, you know, so many things have to fall your way. So when you look for a second generation restaurant, you know that the infrastructure, the restaurant infrastructure is already there. Hence the demand, right? Because now normally they would have a grease trap. They would have the hood and the connections to the exhaust. They would have uh, the, the right amount of electrical power. You usually have already a setup, a kitchen setup, even though most restaurateurs like to set up their kitchen their way. So it's never 100% turnkey. But what you do get is you get that infrastructure that usually takes months to get approvals to be able to build out. That demand for second generation restaurant is usually it's usually a lease, right? You know, most of the second generation restaurants that are available or that come available are for lease. In this case, in this sale, we had the opportunity to sell a restaurant space that included the actual real estate which again, very rare to be able to find. That gives a lot of opportunity to the buyer and the operator. Of course, nobody is going to pay you more for that property other than an operator, right? Because the operator sees the value of being able to control their expenses, right? Because now they know what is going to be the cost of maintaining that space and having that space and paying the mortgage and, and be able to, being able to control it from that angle. And then any improvement that they make into the space, they're doing it to their own space, right? And so, you know, in this case, we had a restaurant that we put on the market it was part of a it was basically um, a condo it was a retail condo in the ground floor of an apartment building and this was an interesting development this is in Brickle and um, the development included a residential tower it also included a an office tower with retail on the ground floor mm-hmm. uh, right on the Miami River and so this was one of the largest units it was a corner unit so it had a great exposure we put it on the market and we had you know quite a lot of interest from different operators and finally it sold to an operator that had already four restaurants in in the area when you go through something like this what you're what you're selling is uh, a combination of factors number one the value comes from the space itself right then there's a value to the fact that the restaurant infrastructure is already there and then there's a value with the with the furniture fixtures and equipment that you're going to include in the sale right because it's you know it, it's not really practical for you to take everything out there and sell it you can absolutely do that but it is more valuable when you're listing a property like that to include all the furniture fixtures and equipment that are there so that you know people see the value in moving things around utilizing the spaces well and if somebody were going to lease out the space right they were they would get key money so if it was an owner who owned the building and the restaurant is trying to sell the business instead of the building itself then with the business you would usually pay key money and then take over the lease and the key right. money to your point is to cover all of the yeah. ff and e that's already in the in the space correct and that's an interesting dynamic when you own a, a retail shop let's say and it's occupied by a by a restaurant let's say that it wasn't a restaurant to begin with usually as a landlord if you're going to rent it to a restaurant they know that you're going to have to build the restaurant is going to have to build all of the restaurant infrastructure the grease trap the hood etc cetera, etc cetera. and 
And then as a landlord, you usually give a tenant improvement credit for those things. So you kind of become a co-investor into the space. But anything that is affixed to the unit, once the tenant leaves, stays with the unit. And so now that space has, you know, potentially more value, right, than if it was a blank canvas. And so there is incredible value in, in that infrastructure, you know, being in place. What is always interesting here, especially in Dade County, is that in 2017, Dade County changed the rules of the grease trap. Right, and so whenever you're transacting in a second-generation restaurant, that always becomes the question: Is it is it up to the new code, right? Or will DERM, right, the Department of Environmental uh, Resources, it will allow me to function with the current grease trap as it is? And what people don't understand, that sometimes don't understand, especially when they when they haven't gone through a process like this, is that all of that is based on a calculation of output, right? The kind of restaurant that you have has a lot to do with how much that grease trap is going to be in use mm -hmm. and they calculate basically what the output is likely to be from operating that restaurant seven days a week six days a week five days a week whatever it is and it also depends on how heavy the grease like likely is to be had so for example if you if you have a fireman subs right you're not going to have that much of an output on grease than if you have a burger joint, a burger joint. there you go <laughs> so so hence the difference so a big part of the due diligence process when somebody is buying or leasing a second generation restaurant is figuring all of that stuff out make sure that the certificate of use is transferable am I going to be able to use the same use or if I'm expanding the use am I likely to get the approval from from the county or the city the municipality to be able to to make that happen obviously in this case they're also looking at the quality of the building I mean the quality of the space and they got to take a look at the association dues what does the association cover so it's it's very much like buying a condo in that way but you're buying a commercial condo right so that becomes part of the process and then the most uh, <laughs> the funnest part is now we have to inventory the the place and I remember going with Jessica to you know make a long list of all of the props so we took a picture of every every piece of FFNE that was there we itemized it so that it would be part of of the contract and um, the great thing about having an operator buying it especially one that already has four four spaces mm -hmm. is that they were able to get financing and uh, I think they went SBA so they were able right. to get a good so that's another interesting thing about restaurants right we, right. we heard from um, Robin Webb about how hotels are a business restaurants right. are obviously a business so you can yeah. own the business you can own the real estate or you can own both so right. in this case even though you weren't selling the business per se because you didn't sell the name and the goodwill yeah. you did sell all of the equipment and everything right. and you're saying you wrapped all of that into the price or yeah. did you have a separate price for the real estate and a separate price for the ffne when evaluating this particular uh, property we looked at all those angles right and i looked at them separately and then i put them and i put them together because i know that that's how the appraiser will look at it right the appraiser will look at putting a value on the real estate then they will put a value on the ffne if there was an ongoing concern they might put a value on that but in this case that was not what we were trying to sell so there was no goodwill or name that was a part of it but 
the third aspect of it is the use, right? So if I if I have a condo the same size in the same building or in a building similar to it, one has the restaurant infrastructure, one does not, then I gotta give a lot more value to the restaurant infrastructure. And part of this is a little bit of a combination of art and science, because you have to also look at, you have to let the market guide you. You have to understand that there is high demand. You have to understand that there's not a lot of inventory. You have to understand that, look at leading indicators. What are, What is everybody else asking for a second generation restaurant. The other way to look at it is, of course, the income approach. You know, you want to decide if I'm buying this and I'm an operator, yes, I'm going to give it more value. But if things don't go well and I need to lease it, what will I lease it for? And then if I if I take that net operating income, then I'm able to establish kind of a cap rate and see what the going cap rate in the area. So then that also gives you a number. And you kind of try to start putting, you know, all these numbers together. The last thing I did was say, okay, if I'm an operator and I'm getting this 3,000 square foot, uh, you know, restaurant, if I were to lease it in the same area, what would I pay, right? And then when you realize that buying it is going to be a lot cheaper than mm-hmm. renting, right? Plus the fact that you have more control over future expenses because it is your property, then that also informs your ability to price it. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, and I, and I say this to people, you've heard me say this to people before, when you're doing your evaluation on pricing a property, you are also creating the argument that you're going to make to the market of why it is worth what it's worth. Mm-hmm. And that's why you don't want to shortchange that process and you want to be very thoughtful in that process. Well, in doing that, going through that process is also going to help you identify who the best potential buyer of that property is going to be. Right. Is it going to be an investor or is it going to be an owner user? Correct. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and, I, and I knew for sure that nobody would pay more than an owner, owner user for the property. And, you know, we were able to achieve the number that we were after and find the right partner, really, at the end of the, of the day. The property does have some challenges, right, that you overcome. You know, you're, you're in a condo. You're not, it's not freestanding. Mm-hmm. Parking is by valet. You got to pay for that, you know. So you got to take into account, well, how many people are going to come and see me? I'm going to cover valet. What is that going to be? The, what's going to be the charge? Yeah, in this, in this case, though, because it was yeah. a downtown, Town Brickle Prime location, and this is a restaurant that had four other. Right, this was going to be their fifth, or was this going to be their fourth? This was going to be their fifth. This was going to be their fifth, right? And so. And, and, and what I and loved is it was one family-owned restaurant group selling to another family-owned restaurant right. group. So, so it was and, awesome. And local. So that's and local. awesome, too. That's right. Local yeah. long-timers. And what's cool is that, so to your point about the valet and everything, because this was an yeah. urban setting, you know, mm-hmm. vibrant downtown, I don't think the valet and everything was going to be as big an issue right. because the people who are in the suburbs yeah. aren't going to be driving to this one no. downtown because there was... One a lot right. closer to them with yeah. free parking and not the traffic and all the stuff right. that people who drive from the suburbs instead of yeah. Ubering from the suburbs into an urban center yeah. go crazy with parking and everything. So I, in this case, I don't think it's that big of a difference. Now, if it had been them moving and this being their only location right. and they're moving from the suburbs and trying to bring their clientele right. to this yeah. location, then yeah, I would say you're absolutely right, right yeah. because my suburbans aren't going to want to pay $25 to yeah. have their car parked. No, and I will say the other thing that was interesting here, this was in a part of Brickle that was not, you're not in the heart of Brickle, right? right? And so, but 
I started to look at the landscape and you know you would say well look I'm, I'm selling a condo let me just focus on the condo but the reality is that this is where location matters right and understanding where what is happening in that place and what is the potential growth factor so for example one of the things that I realized was that this was probably one of the areas in Brickell that has the most potential for new development right and then I started doing research and then I realized well wait a minute we just had two hotels mm -hmm. that opened up a block away right that were under construction and they they opened up a month after I listed the property so that I knew that that was going to be a part of the component then you have the Chetrick group making this huge development they had already broken ground five faces and you're going to have you know 6,500 units right. between the hotel it's a huge mixed-use project so you're going to have the residential units you're going to have an apartment building for rentals you're going to have the hotel mm -hmm. all of that component and you're going to have all of the all of the retail so again and that is like caddy yeah yeah caddy corner to it and then you start putting together years ago miami made an effort to say we want to develop all of the area surrounding the river all of the back of the buildings that are right facing the building so that we have walkability and you're able to actually walk that becomes now a part of it and then and then you have the astro development where they're developing in, in what used to be the miami the city of miami offices mm -hmm. right that now once it gets built on they'll be built in into into that as well and so now you know you started to put the pieces together and part of the argument that I was making to the market was that you have an opportunity to get here early right but right. not too early right because right, right, you're right. you're it's you have an opportunity that you're not going to have traffic right. but you're going right. to be able to scale this you're up significantly and you're going to get appreciation that's right yeah. correct and i think that it has worked out really 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 well for for all parties you know well and the interesting thing is you mentioned that the building is on the miami river but the restaurant itself didn't face the miami no. river it faced the street correct. and some people would think that that's a negative i think it's a huge positive because yeah if it were facing the river great yeah you have beautiful views for your your guests and everything but nobody sees you so they have to know you're there Correct. and find you That's right. whereas this is miami we're a party town nobody wants to go to an empty place right you want to go right. where there's action and activity and in this yeah. case it had a terrace facing a busy traffic street yeah. so if i'm sitting in traffic and i see a party on that terrace going yeah. on and people having fun in a packed restaurant i'm going to be right. like oh my gosh yeah. what's that and pay attention and next yeah. time want to go by and want to see or if somebody says where can I go downtown oh wait I remember seeing this place that was packed and it looks like fun and can I also tell you something that I think is important to note is no okay sorry sorry of course please please go ahead uh, the, uh, the uh, I have to work with her ladies and gentlemen I have to work with her one of the things that I find interesting is that what I think the food and wine festival has done is put a spotlight on our food and beverage industry here in South Florida and like you said this started in the 90s so it's been it's been quite a process definitely a big jump once food network became a partner but what I find really interesting is that not only are we having an opportunity to showcase more of the local food and uh, operators here but I also have found that over the last few years a lot of those operators have 
been inviting been invited to other festivals around the country Correct. so they'll Correct. go to new york they'll go and so you know i find that that whole like sandwich in miami a couple of years ago went to this new york festival they won you know best sandwich mm-hmm. in the festival and they're they're involved in so many things and gold belly came down and they created this package so they could send it out around the country but then they did an entire showcase for them and this beautiful video of how they make the sandwiches and i like the idea that not only is it that people are coming here to stay but that now our local talent right is being showcased like, you know exactly. around around the country exactly and yeah. yeah we we have a unique spin on stuff just because yeah. i mean i know new york is a melting pot and san francisco yeah. is a melting pot but i feel like the flavors that are inspired here i don't know if it's because of what we grow locally or because we are so tropical or because we get influences strong influences yeah. from the caribbean and latin america but i feel like I go to New York and yeah, great Italian food, great French food, but I don't really find the nuanced taste. You know, you get wonderful food and beautiful, and a lot of them are, are you know, works of art. You get a plate and you're like, okay, yeah. I barely want to eat that. It's so pretty. But here you get that, but you also get these unique flavors. Like Kush does a burger <laughs> with mm-hmm. like guava sauce right right? like who puts guava on a burger it's really really good right so you think of stuff like that and and (laughs) (laughs) and so i think that that's cool too because to your point of being of exporting these chefs we're also exporting a little bit of the flavors of miami Yeah. yeah 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 which is super cool back when i was teaching history we had a whole section on teaching history through food and if you really think about it, the, the number one moniker of a thriving culture is language. If you lose your language, you lose your culture. But the second one is food, food. right? And that's a really interesting dynamic on, you know, and there were some dishes all around the world. You could pick any, any major national dish. And if you break it down into its parts, you can understand the entire history of that right. region right. based on breaking down that dish. And, you know, that to your point, it's really cool that we get to export our talent, our food, our culture, and our mix of cultures, you know, mm-hmm. that are here. I'll tell you because, you know, years ago, it was a great Ethiopian restaurant in Midtown. And, you know, you would you would think Ethiopian food, you know, that's not, it's not something that you think would be exported. I thought it was so cool. Like we're going beyond just the Latin American flavors, but we're really getting this international cuisine. I'm very happy to see it. Now, I'll tell you this because you, you mentioned about New York and the feel of it. And But listen, we as a city are just on the other side of 100 years old. We're very young. There's a teenage a feel here. You know, we're young. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're hungry. We're exploring. We're, we're exploring. We're testing. We're experimenting. We're, we're, experimenting. <laughs> yeah. we're going through growing pains. We, right. you know, and, and so that. That energy, I think, you know, is palpable and it, it resonates everywhere, you know. For so. sure. So, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. super excited about where we are and how we got here and Absolutely. really looking forward to see where we're going to be even just That's by right. the end of this year. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, things seem to be happening, happening so rapidly. So do you have a fun stat? I do, actually, and it comes from the festival itself. So last year, the festival saw 
you know, welcomed nearly 65,000 people. They hosted over 110 different events. But they also hired this company called Clean Vibes. And they are dedicated to responsible on-site waste management. And basically, between recycling, the festival's green team diverted over 43 tons of waste from the venue. And so, you know, it was, it was really, really cool how they are, of course, looking for ways to responsibly put in this episode, this festival, because it is a very taxing festival yeah. Yeah, yeah. in a in a small location to bring 65,000. So. And not for anything, but it's it's important because think about it just like the burger bash on the beach right so how do you contain waste that you know the napkins the plates the whatever in an area that's could be windy you don't want the stuff blowing in the ocean so for me I'm gonna do hamburgers because I'm into the burger bash and unfortunately the only information that i can find was dated 2020 that wasn't specific to one of like the fast food burger chains but americans consume an average of 2.4 hamburgers per day and that results in 50 billion burgers a year so my favorite burger is wait wait wait, wait. <laughs> wait, wait. that doesn't make it uh, wait wait you're saying that we average I'm not per person. Yahoo Life okay. is saying that per person we average two and a half burgers per day. Two point four. Don't exaggerate. <laughs> two point four per day, and this was this like okay, I said, this is back in twenty twenty. Uh, this is freaking me out because that means that I would have to I would have to eat a thousand burgers a year. We eat a thousand burgers a year. That, that, I don't know. I, I, don't, know. I, don't, know. I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm the messenger. Sorry, the sorry, messenger. Yahoo. I want to see the proof. And it's 50 billion burgers per year. That's interesting. I mean, maybe, you know. I get the 50. I, I believe the 50 million burgers per year. I don't, I don't know about the 2.4, 2. 2. 2. you know. But, you know. And my favorite burger is the Miami Blues from Locale. Uh, it's the Kush yeah. Hospitality Group. With, uh, and With blue cheese? With blue cheese. Ah, uh, yes. So yeah. So good. And it gets all melty and gooey. Oh my God. You and my wife with the blue cheese. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. All righty. Thank you for joining us, everybody. We've got to go eat. Absolutely. <laughs> and I bet after listening to this, you got to go eat too. So bon appetit. Thank you, guys.